0: Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the Message Trust. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing, check out our website, message.org.uk. This talk was recorded approximately 2015. Unfortunately, due to some technical issues, the audio quality is not as good as usual. However, the teaching was so good, we didn't want you to miss it. Uh, Hasn't it been a great conference so far? Hasn't it? I mean, it's just going up and up and up. It's just fantastic. And uh, we're going to have a great seminar now with Angie as she unpacks for us how to involve others and release others into the mission uh, that God has for us. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, just speak to us even now. And uh, we pray for Angie, Lord, that you'd release her, Lord, that she'd take a liberty with us and feel free amongst us to share what you have for her to share amongst us, Lord. We love you and we honour you. Uh, Be with us, Lord. Amen. Over to you. Well, thanks, everyone. It's fine if I sit here, that's okay. Uh, I guess today I just thought I might just start off with sharing a little bit of a story. And um, the story of the journey of the last 25 years. Uh, I remember one day being introduced as an expert in urban mission. And I really think you can actually never be an expert in this stuff. Because every community and every relationship is different, isn't it? And so the best we can hope for is that we learn from the mistakes we make. And um, I did think that one day I should write a book. I was going to call it um, missionary, not just a physician. But I didn't think the Christian bookshops would sell it. So, And um, in all seriousness, I thought the book... Uh, sometimes there's that whole Christian urban myth thing that goes on, isn't there? Where you hear the stories and, you know, we go out and we rescue all these people that were on drugs and their lives change and da-da-da-da. But I think sometimes when you follow those stories in relationships... Um, Telling them out of context can actually make them sound a lot better than they are, a lot more romantic than they are. And I think, um, as now heading towards the older generation in the church, we owe it to people to be a bit more truthful about actually what it takes. And that's why I love what Danielle shared. Um, Most of what we do is boring. People would look at it and think, what are you doing? That doesn't seem like anything. I can tell you what I did last week. I picked through rubbish at home base in a bright yellow vest. I um, taught an art group for kids. I hate art. Um, I cooked a curry. As people who know me know, I hate cooking, but that's what my friend wanted to do. Just boring little things like that. But it's actually week after week, month after month, year after year, doing those things that lead to the stories that are often told up the front, aren't they? But most people leave the mission field before they get to see their fruitfulness. And all missiology talks about, you know, when you go to a foreign country, you know, the first five years is you're learning. The second five years you start, um, you learn all the things you learnt were wrong. <laughs> and then it's in your last five years, so your fifth, at about the 10-year mark, you really start to see impact. And actually what we're reading in statistics, not just about overseas mission, but mission in the West, is most people last two to three years. And I can tell you our time in Thailand at the five-year mark we were so tempted to give up because we are like, we are so rubbish at learning language. We are never going to be any good here. We're still the dumb foreigners who keep making mistakes. Maybe we should go back to Australia where we can actually be useful. And I'd probably say it was after that moment that God really opened up change. It was when, as I shared this morning, that young guy, Jim, came to faith. Um, one of the commands of Jesus was to share communion. We took him to a local Thai church. They refused communion for him because... He didn't fit their criteria, wasn't baptised in their church. And from there, we just started doing communion together, and others joined. And we really saw God open up so many things. And um, so, if I can say anything today, if you feel like giving up, God's really starting to work, so hang in there. And often we've talked about it, there's the ideal. So, when you go into a community, I'm at this sort of stage. We moved to Winston Green, I saw a bit of the Benefit Street thing. I had this whole ideal of what I was going to do and going to get there. And, get to know the neighbours and have all these things going. And then there's the ordeal. When the novelty wears off, when you're in freezing cold England, you're lying in bed with pneumonia, you've got no gas because we have the landlord from hell, and um, you think, what am I doing here? And then if you can hang in through that, there's the new deal. And I say, then comes the real deal, as God does his work. And so that is probably, I think, the one thing that I'm really grateful for that we were told early on and that helped us stick through. So if you are in that place where you're feeling like people, sometimes, as those of us who are a bit more in the charismatic scene, we like to use a bit of God talk. We know God's closing a door. Or, and it's very hard when people talk to you and they say God has told them something because who am I to say he hasn't? So it can be very unhelpful, some of our Christianese, can't it? And I think God actually never closes doors. He never calls us from things. He always calls us to things. So that can also be a really helpful guide when you're looking at, what is next for me? Has God called me to something in this scenario? Um, So our story, and as you probably heard from Ash, those of you who were in yesterday's group, we started in Australia 25 years ago, working as Youth for Christ workers. And our passion was the poor, the lost and the least. Kids, particularly teenagers, on the margins of society And um, what we believe God called us to do was to reach these young people and disciple them into the church. As we went on that process, what we learned very quickly was there were two cultures at work. And the young people in Australia who were in the communities where uh, they were going to the detention centres and prison, um, there was very little church. In Australia, it is actually quite different to the UK, the church is largely middle to upper class. And actually in poor communities, If there is a church at all, people actually commute into that church. And so there's quite an absence of Christians. If you live in a working class, I don't know why we call it that, because in our working class communities no one works. But anyway, uh, if you live in a poor community in Australia, it's unlikely that you would just happen to know a Christian through your neighbourhood, through your school, through your local shop, because Christians live in the middle class or upper middle class communities. And so we started to see that taking these kids from Springvale and Frankston Pines, which are the two areas we were working in, and trying to shove them into the church. It just wasn't working. And there's actually one church, and to this day they still support us. We took, Ash and I had four Pacific Island um, foster sons living with us. And they were big boys, and they didn't um, have some of the cultural awareness maybe that um, some of the other kids might have had that you would assume. So I remember going, the church invited us back to one of the houses after church for supper. And Nicaro, one of our big boys, walks in and there's a fish tank with goldfish in it. And he goes, oh yum, and he picks up the live goldfish and swallows it. And the little kid whose house it was bursts into tears. And I'm behind him and go, ah, and the other boys all start laughing and you know, sticking their hands in. I'm like, stop. <laughs> and um, just, you know, and then later when we went to leave, I couldn't find the boys. And they'd wandered into the ensuite suite and they are all using the hairbrush. And what the people didn't realise, even though they were horrified anyway, all our boys had lice all the time. And I know if it's very, very Afro here, it's really hard to get out of. So we were constantly the headlines family. And um, that church, bless them, decided they would sponsor us to start our own church. (laughs) (laughs) And to this day, they still send $50 a month to support our ministry. And so um, I think our kids set off the fire extinguisher and broke the basketball hoop in the hall as well. but it just helped clarify for us the difference that we were, we're actually doing cross-cultural ministry, not because the kids we had with us were from the Pacific Islands, because there was a whole mix, but because we were working in a community that was not of the same culture as the church. And so we went on this journey to think about how could we be missionaries within Australia, within poor communities, and, and went on a journey and eventually formed Urban Neighbours of Hope. Um, and after a few years of being a part of Urban Neighbours of Hope, we formed ourselves as actually a religious order. And so we became a Protestant order. One of the things that we saw is our friends who were working with the poor, um, a lot of them had then gone on to sort of lose their faith and to be good social workers. And I think we... A friend of ours, Dave Andrews, has a saying, um, many people start off doing good and end up doing very well. And I think we saw that a lot where people who started working with their kids who were broken and poor and on the margins got really good at that and then got offered these jobs to manage... Projects and were very quickly taken from the community and suddenly had all these professional boundaries where you couldn't take a homeless person into your house because that crossed your boundary and all of that. So we looked around and we looked at who are the groups that are still doing what God called them to do 100 years on. You know, what are the groups that we felt we were particularly called to the poor and the marginalised? What is the container we could put around ourselves to make sure that when we look back in 80 years, we're still keeping the main thing the main thing? And we looked particularly at the Jesuits and the Franciscans. Um, And we looked at the whole concept of what it would mean to be an order. And an order where we had common practices, where we held each other accountable, where we made decisions communally. We did um, muck around for a while, well not muck around, I think Ash was serious, about wearing a uniform, Salvation Army inspired. Um, And... We were sort of looking back then, it was the 80s have a lot to answer for. It was We all wore blundstone boots and leggings, not a good look if it ever comes back in, don't do it girls. And the long cheesecloth, so we thought could we like do the, the cheesecloth sort of thing, and some of us had the little Indonesian hats going. Ash actually had hair down to here, and little Gandhi glasses. Um, uh, anyway, <laughs> I, just, I just shiver out loud. Um, but one of the reasons we thought of that, and uh, through reading stuff from Salvation Army other days, is that when we were out in the community we wanted people to know who we were and that they could approach us. And so we went on a retreat and we all went and thought we were very cool and got a Celtic cross tattoo on our arms. Anyway, we came back with our tattoo and then realised it's always really cold in Melbourne, who's ever going to see it? Um, And then a friend of ours from God Squad shows up one day and we're all there with our fresh tattoos and he's got one like huge and we're all sort of our little tiny tattoo. there was a, another group, a Baptist group actually in Australia called Breakwater, I think they're called, um, who are a closet, uh, um, contemplative order and they wear the full habit. Anyway, one of the guys came to our house and I remember seeing, watching Ash look at this guy getting out of the car with all these cloaks and everything and sort of cringing. I was like, yes, thank you, Lord. I really don't want to wear the uniform. But the idea being and in our keenness and our freshness is that we, we, we were terrified, we didn't trust ourselves, that we would stick to what God had called us to do. And um, we, had, we were surrounded by great mentors who just said, you just need to be you, the you that God created you to be. Because when you are doing Incarnational Mission, and as those of you who do it know, people see you every day, don't they? You can't put on the Spiro on Sunday and then just be a different version of you the rest of the week. And so we started to go on this journey as we moved into the community that we served. And... We believed, you know, at that time, I think that we're going to transform this community. And what we actually experienced was God transforming us. And starting to live a much more integrated life where we started to realise that it's all the God bit. So all of this is spiritual. It's not just when we have a conversation that mentions the word God. And that became a real challenge uh, for us to really just be who God had created us to be. We moved, after about 10 years of that, we mainly worked, me particularly, with people detoxing from heroin. We experimented with all sorts of things. Largely, we just fell into things. We met somebody who had a need, and we had a saying that, if there's something I can do to meet the need of this person that's healthy, I need to do it. And feeding a hungry person or housing a homeless person is good and pleasing to God in and of itself. We do not do that to convert them. And I think that was kind of another watershed moment for us coming out of kind of the world is for Christ kind of thing with our charismatic background, thinking that we're just going to get people in and we want to get them to pray the prayer and cross the line. When Ash and I were actually engaged, I, don't, I think we might have been trying to impress each other. And I used to drive this little old Morris 1100 and I had a friend paint pink flowers all over it. And um, Ash would like scrunch his body into it. He didn't have a car at that time. I remember we picked up this hitchhiker and we were so determined to shove Christianity down his throat as... I talked about today, is that we drove 80 kilometres out of our way. We wouldn't let him out the car until he prayed the prayer. And um, just thinking about that, that poor guy now, was just like, he was like, I would have prayed it at 40 kilometres, come on. <laughs> um, but just the things that, it was all from good intention. We were on fire for Jesus, we just wanted others to know Jesus. But I think something that our journey over the last 25 years has shown us is that God does the work in people's lives. It's not my job to convert people. It's my job to love them as Jesus does. It's my job to be the best example of Christ that I can be in the community. And it's my job to make sure that I'm placed in a place where I will see and be connected to the poor. And um, there's lots and lots of Christians I meet who have a real genuine passion for the poor. And the heartbreak that I have is that they don't know anyone who's poor. And I think where you stand determines what you see. So if, you're not, if you don't know anyone who's poor, move. And it's as simple as that. You don't need a flashy program. You just need to be in the right place. And um, I've some, you know, we have some very important techniques that have taken many years at Bible College to learn and hone that we use. And one of them is called loitering with intent. It took a lot, a lot of years to hone. And basically, all I do is I just try to work out where people are in the community we're in and just be in that place. So an example is, we have this little dog, a pug, the crazy pug lady. It was a bribery to get my son to move from Thailand to the UK. And so when you have a dog, you've got to walk it. When you live in a largely Asian and Muslim community, it's not the best way to meet people. But I have found there's a little park around the corner. And opposite the park is one of these kind of boarding houses where a whole lot of people are put into sort of shared accommodation. And a lot of them are women in my age group and they sit in the park and drink. And so just walking the dog to that particular park, sometimes trying to protect the dog from very drunk people who look like they're going to squeeze the life out of him or kiss him or give him a tonguey. It's just so gross. It happened in Thailand too. We used to have this neighbour or this homeless lady that used to come every morning and lick our dog's tongue. And I would try to stop her, but she'd get so upset. So I'm like, who am I to stop her? (laughs) We had another neighbour who we call Pink Machete Man. He lived over the back from us. He had this pink machete, and he always decided he was going to defend us. His machete was painted with pink house paint, which was a blessing, because house paint's quite thick, and it just means it doesn't cut anything or anyone. But he was a big whiskey drinker, sadly. He was always drunk, Um, and he got our dog drunk by... He would drink whiskey and then let the dog lick his gums. And have you ever seen a dog with a hangover? It's really sad. (laughs) Anyway, gross. I don't know why I'm telling you that story, but... um, so the whole loitering with intent, one of the things is I didn't realise I did it. I'm just a bit of a sticky beak and I like to see where the action is. Uh, so we had 12 years in one community in Australia, then we had 12 years in Thailand and then we're at the starting again stage here. And I think one of the things that I'm thinking through, well, what are the things that we have done that work? And it's worked here. Going to the, the one shop every, you know, buying one thing at a time from the shop seems really stupid, but it means you just we've got the grumpiest hardware store owner and my mission is to make him smile. I haven't got there yet, but I just keep going in, telling him my gross mice story, buying my mice traps and he's just deadpan, like, who's this crazy woman? But eventually he will crack. <laughs> but, so that's just a simple thing, is making sure that you are placed where people are. and um, And disempowering ourselves is another thing I think that Ash and I, maybe it's, something we've done naturally maybe it's something that was modeled to us we're not sure but you know Jesus talks about you must lower yourself so that I can be raised up I think that's the same we have to lower ourselves so that the poor can be raised up for those of us that don't have many particular gifts and talents I'm not a good cook I'm not good at art I'm not musical it's a little bit more natural to be able to play up on those weaknesses and then neighbors feel like they need to come in and cook I remember we lived in these flats in Springvale and um it I would fill out lots of people's uh, job centre of things. In Australia, we call it Centrelink, and unemployment stuff and immigration stuff. So it's sort of word gets around you help one person and then they bring friends. So people would come over with these forms always at dinner time. Anyone living in a the community, they always come at dinner time We're trying to calm the kids down. We had a lot of foster kids back then. and um, But they would see the food I was, <laughs> I was cooking. I don't cook, I assemble. So I love Mr. Morrison here and Mrs. Asda, they're my best friends. And you just lots of plastic things in the bin, not very sustainable, I'm sure. But So they would look at this like plain pasta and then a bit of chicken and, and they'd be horrified. And, and the poor need to give, don't they? And so they would bring over food. And that just started a thing where they just needed to teach me how to cook and didn't really work, but they would bring food over. But if you're naturally really gifted at things, you have to find a genuine way to give away your power. And that actually can be a real challenge. But there's always a way. I remember um, one of the things we had in the slum, we, didn't, we don't give people things. We don't give people food or clothes, because you've got 100,000 people at your doorstep. If you do that, you just create a nightmare, you create a riot, pretty much. But there's always a way to give, I've worked out. You've just got to think a little bit creatively. And um, so we have, there's a couple that, an older couple, had a lot of children in our preschool and seemed to be all the cousins, and they were dumped with all these kids of parents who were in prison. And they sold little plastic cups of soft drink out the front of the school every day for five baht, I don't know what that is, 15 cents in Australia, 7p. And I worked out as I watched them each day and bought my Diet Coke at 7am, because you need to, um, that they couldn't have made more than probably 100 baht a day, which is about £1.50. I thought, how are they making any money? So what we started to do is, when we'd go shopping at Tesco's, we'd buy a crate of particular drink. And then I would say, I've got these soft drinks. I don't let my boys drink soft drink. Can you use it? There's always those ways, isn't there? Buy a bag of rice, scoop a few cups out. I've got all this rice, but we're worried the rats are going to get into it. Can you use? So there's just little clever manipulative, I think, you know, ministry ministry of manipulation can sometimes (laughs) work. Um, But anyway, so that is just one of the things, I guess, of that one of the little techniques that we used. Ash talked a little bit yesterday about the miracle A, miracle B, and that, did most people hear that yesterday, or are some of you here for the first time? Did anyone hear it yesterday? Yeah, okay, forgive me for going over it. But basically, coming out of the scene we came out of, we kind of, you know, went into the whole thing about, you know, God's going to do miracles, he's going to turn people's lives around. I had quite a black to white conversion myself. At 14, I had a social worker who um, sent me on this Christian camp where um, everyone tried to Bible bash me I was like not having any of that crap and they did this talk cause this, again it was early 80s and, um, and they did this talk about if you were hit by a bus tonight you died would you go to heaven and I am like yeah that's rubbish you know? so um, the next day we go to a surf beach and Danielle described being dumped by a wave that's a classic Australian experience and I was dumped by this wave and it feels like you're under there forever and I'm under this wave thinking, this is it, I'm going to die and I'm not a Christian, I'm going to go to hell and I rush on the beach and find this guy that had spoken and made him pray with me. I was waiting for like purple lightning and fizzy smoke and nothing happened and my friend, I made her pray too. And the next time I was like, do you feel any different? No. you know. But when I got back into my community, I realised I was instantly very changed. My parents were completely freaked out. Uh, they went and called up the guy who spoke on the camp uh, from Dutch reform background. Any South Africans here would totally understand that. As a result, I got excommunicated from Dutch reform church, but there you go. Um, and they were just totally freaked out about what had happened to their daughter. And through this whole process, my family joined the Baptist church for, what is it, repent and be Baptist, for all have sinned and fallen short of the assemblies of God. And it goes on and on, and we've been, you know, every denomination. But, so I had this kind of experience in my life that just changed me radically. Ash had an experience at 15 where he um, the Holy Spirit came on and he was carried home as if he was drunk. So both of us had these kind of very real conversion experiences. So our assumption is that's going to happen to everyone. And um, so we started on this journey and we were working with all these kids who were doing drugs and they were really open with us and then we'd get them to pray the prayer and they'd be in discipleship and then they'd, what was the term we used in the 80s, who wants to guess? Backslide. Or is it still used in England? I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, and so what would happen is then they would just be dishonest with us and hide all the stuff they were doing. And I was like, this is just not working. We see people every day. We know what's going on. And um, so we started to go on this journey of this whole... And at the time, our foster son was getting sicker and sicker, and we tried everything, and he was getting arrested all the time. And I remember once going to visit him in the psych ward, and he was in um, solitary. He was locked up. And there was a guy sitting there in the little visitor's lounge with a black eye, and the nurse pulls us aside and said... Look, they've had a bit of a fight today. Um, it was over the Trinity. They, he thought he was the Holy Spirit, but this other dude just thought he was the Holy Spirit, didn't want to be Jesus, and the other one's the father. He's always the father. And um, so they had a punch on. And it's always so embarrassing when you're in the social work meeting and you're like the ministers who taught him all this weird stuff. <laughs> anyway, but we were seeing his life not transformed the way we had hoped, and we went on this journey. And I remember someone sharing with us, the miracle A and miracle B and so miracle A is that it does happen but I actually think it's rare the rare miracle where people's lives are transformed instantly from black to white and God does an amazing work but the more common miracle that's less preached about in church and I'm keen to see more talked about is miracle B where maybe that person doesn't change or maybe they change a bit but we change and God uses the lives of the poor for us to see Jesus afresh and to change our lives. And we get to hang in there through the pain. And we carry the scars of things that break the heart of Jesus. And um, it's not as exciting, that one, when you're talking to supporters, is it? And I remember in Thailand we had uh, this guy, Jim Mash was sharing about who had this amazing conversion. Um, he was then we started this little house church, and he would always have all these miracles happen. And, I, you know, I was starting to worry a little bit that it was becoming a bit like Jesus of Santa Claus you know, that um, he'd ask for something and that it would happen. And and that's very much in Thai culture where you go and make an offering at the temple or at the spirit house and then you're breaking your bad luck. And so we're really trying to be very careful to not represent Jesus in that way. So he was talking about that. He was wanting to watch the Liverpool match on TV. um, And he had this particular... We have fake cable in the slum. So for about £4 a month, you get cable. But it changes according to whoever's paying for the original... So you could be watching a movie and then halfway through it changes to the Bundesliga football. Very frustrating. I think for a while we got God Channel and then it changed to the Australian ABC. I was so excited. We had Australian rules football. And then it changed to an Arabic channel. It was bizarre. But anyway, so he had this TV. Wanted to watch a Liverpool match but it was only on the legal cable, not on the one he had. So he prayed and just as he prayed, a truck comes past offering this special cable where you get all the football channels. So as he's saying this in church, I was just thinking, look, I said, you know, how come Jim gets all the miracles? Why don't we get a in? Just trying to open a discussion. And that's basically the style I use, is just try to ask lots of questions of people. And, again, you give away your power. You don't come in as a big cup filling little cups. Come in as a co-learner. And in Thailand that was easy because we had no idea what was going on most of the time. But in in an English-speaking context, that can take some practice, actually. Anyway, so why, you know six months earlier, I had lost all the keys to our community centre, preschool, the motorbikes, the truck, and it was a great inconvenience to everyone. I said, why couldn't God have found the keys? You know, that would have been a better miracle for all of us. Why does Jim get all the good stuff? So everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jim says, well, funny you should say that. Today we're going to pray for miracles. But you have to close your eyes or God won't answer your prayer. We do let a lot of things go through to the keeper. Me and my teammates look at each other going, no. For ages, we used to let in Australia we had a guy who used to say Jesus broke the bread and turned the water into wine. And so we just thought, of no one else thought much, so we just thought, just let it go. And about a year later he was doing this tough journey with Ash and he read that particular story. In his life. And the next week he's like, oh, I've been telling you all bullshit. That's not how it is. And then he, but isn't that way better that he came to that journey than we said, sorry Phil, you're doing it wrong. Especially because the poor have very delicate self-esteem. God doesn't care. Half of it's been mistranslated and mixed around anyway. And actually, the Bible is a library that's all been shoved together. It was only put in a book when the printing press came out in 18-something. I don't know when the printing press came out. Anyway, so we, we close our eyes and we're doing it. You know, are very shy. So we're, and it's, someone's having karaoke outside, so it's this crazy environment. Kids are running around. And as I open my eyes, we're sitting in a circle in this little hut. There's a bunch of keys in the middle. So I grab the keys for a joke and I go, there's my... And they were my keys. And the whole thing had been set up. The week before, my teammate and this kid had found the keys when they were unpacking some football stuff. So they set the whole thing up. So everyone's laughing. Well, my friend Gormley's sitting on the right. She had missed that it's a setup. up. So she grabs my hand and she says, Angie, I want you to pray for me that I haven't seen my daughter in 10 years. I want you to pray that I'll see her. So I'm thinking, I'm really related to what you said today, Daniel, because I'm such a faithful missionary. I did one of those prayers that hedges your bets. God, only if it's your will, you know, because I didn't want her to lose, you know. i thinking she hasn't seen her for 10 years. There's just no way, you know. Anyway, that was Friday night. We do a little church Friday night. On Monday morning, Gung um, was very unwell with HIV and she couldn't work full day jobs, so we started a little coffee shop at the front of our school. She made terrible coffee, <laughs> but anyway, we moved it into lime shakes and we sort of survived that way. But anyway, and you'd always, she's very flamboyant and out there, so you couldn't get through the gate without buying a few of her shakes made with. Usually, fairly dirty water, and um, there I'm at the front gate with another one of the you know, teammates, and there's Goom crying, grabbing this terrified young woman, and she says, "This is my daughter. She came to see me." And we were like, "We we're big so burst into tears, and here's her daughter." And this poor girl was like, "Who are these crazy people?" But anyway, so I could tell that story in the church, and I was tempted because it wasn't a lot of good news in the sun at that time. We had a lot of fires, we had a lot of people dying. And um, the reality is, that that young woman saw her mum taking her ARV, antiretroviral drugs, during the week and on Thursday night because she realised, this is a mum who never nursed, who never cared for me, who gave me away and I'm going to be left nursing her as she dies and so she did a runner and we've never seen her since. And actually that's the real God that we know and how God works. It's not always the way we think. It doesn't mean it wasn't a miracle. But it's not the miracle in the Christian urban myth that we've been allowed. Has anyone heard, like there's all these stories that you hear in church. In the 80s it was someone drilled into the earth and they heard wailing and gnashing of teeth. Did anyone, is anyone old enough to remember those stories? The One, we were going to be speaking at a church, a huge big Pentecostal church, and the guy that are up before us couldn't have been more unhelpful, told the story, and please forgive me if you think this is true. <laughs> Don't want to shatter your face. But anyway, about the tsunami. So we were in Thailand when the tsunami happened. Anyway, and about how it was a Muslim village, and the Christians wanted to have a church service, and they weren't allowed to, and so they had to go up into the hills. Anyone heard this? No, it must have just be an Australian thing, and Southeast Asian thing. And so they'd gone up into the hills to have their church service, and then the tsunami struck. And so all the Christians were saved. Now my daughter was about seven at the time, and she goes, "But well, wouldn't it make more sense that the Christians died and the non-Christians were saved?" That's the guide I understand. But when you follow that story and ask who told that story, very quickly it unravels. And so I think that as urban mission practitioners, the big thing I urge all of us to do is tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the truth is ugly. And the truth is messy. And when you work with the poor and you do life together with the poor, your life becomes messy. It can't, it can't not because... Your heart is broken by the things that break the heart of Jesus, and moving to um, Winston Green, I do want to open up for questions, but um, we had that kind of high, whole ideal we'd spent a year looking on Zoopla if you want to know look at you know how to find a house go Zoopla we were like addicted to it every night on the iPad, trying to find just the right house and just the poorest part of Winston Green or Handsworth where we could live and work and um we didn't make it too complicated because I want to be in the poorest area, but I wanted a nice house. It doesn't kind of work. Anyway, we found this house, Nineveh Road. There you go. And um, so my son says, isn't that, you know, where Noah was supposed to go before the whales followed him? Son of a minister. You can tell he's got his stories. Not good. Anyway, I think that was Jonah. Noah was the other dude. Anyway, um, yeah, some of you didn't even. <laughs> no. mm. uh, anyway... So, Nineveh Road, and we loved it because it's an old terrace but it's five bedrooms because our passion is to take in the poor. We would say that if there's somebody who needs a, is homeless, who needs a bed, you have to, rather than say, should I take them in, we ask the question is, is there a reason why I shouldn't? Because we might be saying no to Jesus. And sometimes there are reasons, actually, to do with our children's age and stage, our particular... But, and, you know, we went through the whole range of... we took in young teenage girls. They are oh, exhausting. Uh, so then i 'd say that 's it I'm done. this next year we 're taking in boys here. You guys have <laughs> the, the trauma never leaves you does it and um, then we took in boys, and I was sick of the grottiness and um, just all the other dramas boys punch on that 's great, but not when you 've got a little kid running around the house and then I thought right we 're taking in families, and well, that comes with its own issues who 's the parent at the time, and then we 'd go back to girls and, you know we did the whole thing there's never a but it 's messy isn 't it but that is the messy call that we have as followers of Christ. So anyway, so it's a five bedroom house, we thought, great, because we don't have any history, we've been ghosts for 12 years. I couldn't get a phone plan until last week. Um, Being a migrant to the UK is not fun, let me tell you, it cost me £4,000 to get a visa. If people tell you it's easy to come here, it's really not. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, visa refused and we get another visa eventually. I'm a nobody, can't put a bill in my name, can't get a phone plan, can't rent a house. Now, I think when you migrate, you probably can rent a house if you have a rental history. Our Thai gangster dude will not write a rental history, and no-one will believe you when you say you pay £30 a month for a house for 12 years. So the only way we could get a property was to pay 6 months' rent in advance. So we pay our 6 months' rent. We arrive. end of November. Freezing cold. We've come from 38 degrees for 12 years. Been in Melbourne for a little bit to sort of acclimatise. Um, and we're just ready to go. So we get... The key from the real estate agent, a house is a tip. It's full of rubbish. The It took us until the end of January to get rid of all the actual garbage rubbish. The backyard's still full of sofas and washing machines and building materials and who knows what in there. And um, the, the oven had something that had been cooked in there that was still sitting there, about that big and very black, not sure what it was. The washing machine, when I opened it, had slimy water. No one had been in the house for six months. Had slimy water, came out in a whole lot of men's underwear. I believe you call them pants. In Australia, pants are these things. Oh no, Manchester, these are pants too. Good, like it. Had a few awkward moments trying to buy my son's school pants in Birmingham. That's, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so you know what you would normally do as a tenant is you just don't pay the rent until it's fixed up. Well, when you've paid your rent in a van, as most migrants coming to the UK or to Birmingham have to do, you've got no power to do anything. Speaking of no power, we have no power. We have, who's seen those like meters where you have to, we have to prepay for our electricity. The only problem is the people before us had had hot wired it wrong, so the meter had a debt on it of £395. The electricity people don't even know how you can get it to do that. So the real estate agent, we're ringing them up, got no power, it's freezing cold, and we're trying to clean up this mess. And they're saying, just pay it, and then the landlord will sort you out. And uh, we're not that dumb. And um, so we had this whole thing, three days, no power. Eventually, I cried. And then the landlord came over, and he said, look, I'm mad at the real estate agent. They haven't done their job, rah, rah, rah. But there's the official way to get power, and then there's my way. So I'm like, oh. So he gets the wires, and he bypasses the meter. Apparently, most of our street has a bypass meter. And I'm like, oh, they do that in the slum, too. There's a lot of similarities even the mice, you know, the, <laughs> the dodgy things. Um, but, you know, so we came into this situation and it, it's been hard. And at the moment we've had no gas since Easter. It's freezing cold, probably why I got pneumonia and haven't got well. Long, long story. The landlord won't pay for a proper gas person. British gas are horrified at how unsafe the boiler and everything is and you can smell gas when it's on. So they cap it. He comes back, rips the cap off. They come back, cap it again. It's just, so, and you feel a little bit intimidated because you're in his house. So we are trying to get out of there and then we'll help British gas taking. But in the middle of that, we met a neighbour, an African-Caribbean neighbour who's had no power, for, no um, heating for six months. And then I just thought, isn't this a great experience? This is the experience of the poor. This is our Bengali neighbour, no English. No understanding of what your rights are because housing is very different in other countries. And um, and so everyone says, oh, but it's, it's illegal for your landlord to do this and this. What's illegal and what happens in Winton and Green and Hansel is two different things. And it's, it's common, it's not just us. So again, instead of, you know, I did cry and it has been annoying, but what a blessing to have the same experience that our neighbours have. And so these are the things that if we change our lives just a little bit and position ourselves where we can see the poor and be part of life with the poor, we can also have experiences that can be very, very powerful, that can help us advocate for our neighbours. Um, so miracle A and miracle B we expect that in our current neighbourhood we will see the same thing we will see people die but we will also see lives change and we will see probably everything in between Um, but we know that in that it doesn't mean God's not at work it means that we're in the right place that God has called us to and um, in Thailand that was a very stark reality there's no palliative care for people in Thailand so all through the slum people are sent home to die without any painkillers Imagine dying of liver cancer with no painkillers. I started sort of an unofficial, you can do lots of dodgy things over there, and so I'm a social worker, not a medical person, but I started a medical program about probably eight years ago just because people were just literally lying in their own filth. And so people would come to me for the foreign medicine, which was codeine. They don't have codeine in Thailand. So when you're covered in burns or you break your arm, you give them half a codeine tablet. People have no tolerance for it, so the pain instantly goes away. And so it was this magic medicine people would come for. It was probably so dodgy. But anyway, um, but then as people started to realise we would help, with would take people off the stitches, and someone broke a leg, we'd take them, uh, we'd advocate for them at the hospital. And so people started to call me in to nurse their dying relatives. And um, we'd been in Australia for a few weeks and I came back and my neighbour's house, so our door is here and her door is right there. And in the morning, she opens that door, uh, the window, and it becomes a breakfast centre. So it's the best spot for a missionary to live, because you hear all the gossip about what happens. And I would just sit on my doorstep with my coffee at six in the morning, and everyone comes, and you go, oh, so-and-so. Because everyone has multiple partners, too, so it's really confusing to work out who's in what family. Oh, so she's the minor wife, and she's his geek, which is what they call your sort of girlfriend on the side and there's all these levels and you can start to work out that the kids at your preschool are actually all from the same guy but they live in three different houses and it just does your head in. Church camp's really interesting. Who comes on church camp and then who sleeps in whose room and then we all have the confusing gender thing too. So we have a lot of um, uh, Katoid which is actually... It's not transgender. It's not men born thinking they're in the wrong body and wanting to change to a female body. It is actually a gender. It's a whole animistic thing and I could tell you long stories about that. So we'd have people who I wouldn't know what gender they identified with until they spoke. And then, so you have church camp, and then what do you do? So we well, didn't know. So we just rent only something with one big hall where we could all stay in it together, and that solved all that confusion. You know, it's up to God to work the rest out. So um, Anyway, so I remember my friend, Pissim, she's there. Her daughter um, was working for me, and her kids were all in our kids' club and kinder. And um, I could hear groaning coming from the room. And I said, oh, what's going on? And she said, I'll leave all the expletives out, but basically her brother, um, you know, he's in a coma. And he basically, her brother was this really rugged motorbike taxi driver. He's a really scary dude. Ties are mainly nice people, but this guy was actually a nasty bastard. He was like, Oops. Um <laughs> He was. He was just. I. I would talk to him. I try to just not let it faze me. But inside, I'd be like, oh. Whisk. And his two sons were now in prison, so we had a bit to do with them. And he was just always drinking, and not helping with the family. And um, he had pancreatitis and diabetes. And he, because of all the whiskey, basically went into a diabetic coma. He was taken off to hospital, and uh, they actually resuscitated him, which is sad. And so he was left with brain damage, uh, a loss of impulse control. And um, by the time we got back, he'd come back from hospital before we left. But by the time we got back, they'd just chained him up in a room because he was just causing chaos. And I could hear him just groaning, help me, help me. He was calling out my name because I could hear my deep man voice. And um, so I thought, i just got to do something. So I said, can I go and see him? And I go in and there's a skeleton lying in that much urine in just a nappy with massive bed sores, like just huge, huge diabetic ulcers on his legs. And he just looked at me, his face was all yellow, and just he widened and said, please help him. And I thought, this is a human being here. I have to do something. I have this posh friend. She lives in Surrey, and uh, she's always been posh. Uh, and she came to be a volunteer with me. She actually uh, rang me up and said, I just did the cooking with poo class. And um, she told me, you need volunteers. I'm an atheist, but can I come and... I said, well, God, can you use anyone? Come along. Anyway, so she was coming to see me that day because we were nursing a boy with a broken leg. She was doing his physio. Anyway, so I said, rang around and said, look, can you bring your car and we can drive him to hospital? I didn't tell her the details of the state he was in. Anyway, we had a food cart, like a trolley they put fruit on, you would see in India. And it. So the two of us go in there, we pick him up. As we pick him up, the nappy was so heavy with urine that it just broke and splashed. And it all went on our lips. Gross moment. And as I picked him up, he screamed. My fingers went knuckle deep right into the wound at the back of his leg that I hadn't noticed. Anyway, he's just covered in faeces. We later on affectionately called him Pooh Man because he was constantly covered in poo. And his eyebrows just... He had really, really long nails, all poop and pus and everything. So we put him on this trolley and we take him out to her beautiful car with the driver. <laughs> and... um we put some towels down and we put him in the car. And I remember her just saying, please don't let him die in my car. And I thought she was concerned about, you know, the car, but she was just so terrified that the Ties would all think she had killed this man. <laughs> anyway, and we take him off to hospital. Long story short, he's in hospital for three months, he has a few skin grafts, and then it's the hottest time of the year and we get a call to say, you've got to come and get him. Well, his sister said, I don't want him. And she's got two little grandbabies at the time, so she's basically on her own. She's um, she's got an 18-year-old who's got a, a three-year-old at the time. Since had another baby. Her 15-year-old son has had a baby and given the baby to grandma. He's in jail. So Skate was about, I think, is about six months old. Quite a difficult baby. It was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. So a lot of issues. And um, then she had. Uh, Piboo, this man's two sons, had just both come out of prison and all sorts of chaos. She had all that going on and she's selling food every day to support them. And I was just thinking, oh my gosh, how can I burden her with this guy? So in the end, I said, I'll do a deal, I'll nurse him and then we'll just keep his room. And so what would happen every day is I would go into the room that he was locked up in at night and um, at about 10 to 6 before she'd open her shop, and I would bring him over, and he would be literally covered from head to foot in poo. He had a catheter, which he'd keep pulling out, so eventually the doctor showed me how to put the catheter back in. Very gross. Guys, I hope you never need one. It's really horrible. Um, And he would literally just wipe the poo all over himself. And so here I was, and he's got bandages that I'd put on the day before all covered in poo, and I'd walk in the little few steps through our house so there'd be little poo prints going through the house and everything he touched. Uh, What was quite ironic is I washed him every day, and Ash got... Um, typhoid from being around feces. So I don't know how that works. <laughs> uh, I, anyway, so I um, we wash in. We literally cut those clothes off, throw them in. We had the whole routine, garbage bags, gloves. Worst moment, in the slum, it's hot all the time, no aircon. con. So you're hosing someone down. You've got sweat running in your eyes. Poop gloves in your eyes. Dettol is not an eye wash. It burnt all the skin around the eyes because <laughs> I was like, I wiped massive chunks. Anyway, so... I really admire nurses. Any nurses here? My gosh, that is a skill. The washing thing, what you do with all the bits. I, awkward, some very awkward moments. Anyway, once we cleaned him up, I would then re-bandage all the wounds. We managed to, um, well, I might, maybe won't tell that bit. We managed to sedate him because he would roam around. So we had some medicine that we could inject. And I'd inject his um, diabetic things. And he would be all dressed up nicely, smelling like roses with a cup of tea. And he was human again. And just a look on his face. And and his brain was quite like a child, but he would just be so happy. And then by about 9 o'clock when I'd have to head off to work, I'd take him back into his room and he'd hate it. He would fight me and we'd we'd lock up the door. And by then the meds sometimes would start to kick in. Occasionally I'd get a call saying, two man's escaped, he's down at lock one, that section of slum, he's sitting on someone's food stall and he's wiping faeces everywhere. And then they'd beat him up and he'd be bleeding. And So it was actually the only kind thing to do is to... Um, chain him up. Horrible, horrible scenario. And um, anyway, but as this went on and on, we were then, another year was heading and we were due to go back to Australia for a few weeks. And I thought, now it's going to be the burden of his sister. I managed to find some people who could wash him once a day, but at that point it was to twice a day washing because his wounds were quite bad. And so I just, I really felt like I had to give her the injections and leave it up to her. And part of me knew she was not going to give him injections because he was a burden to her and as much as she loved her brother he was a burden we came back after that time we'd been away four weeks and he was pretty much in a coma lying there and it was all I could do not to intervene but I just thought I have no right to prolong his suffering and her suffering unless I'm going to be here forever and at that point we started to know we were going to be moving very unchristian thing I let a man die he died about a week later and he didn't have to. I could have. He's 46. And I, that's a really hard theological position to be in, isn't it? But when we journey with the poor, it's not black and white anymore, isn't it? There's lots and lots of grey. And I think that has been the biggest lesson. He's an extreme case. At The funeral was beautiful. Um, they have a guy who comes, to call him the body man because Thais have all these um, animistic beliefs. So when someone dies, no one can touch the body. So you have this guy who's got a special dispensation from the monks, and you call him up. He's just a local old guy from around the corner, and he comes with a syringe of... Is it formalin? I think it's formalin that they put in the body, because in the tropical heat or formaldehyde, is that what they put in human... One of them. I know the word in Thai, but I don't... Whatever it is, that makes the body hard. So he comes with his syringe, because straight away all the fluids start seeping out, and... and um, pooling. Anyway, there's a lot of things you can do with kitty litter and garbage bags that we discovered. It's gross, but that sort of thing. So, um, body man we call him, he would come. But they don't have a measure, so they just give the same amount. Now, Piboo was a skeleton when he died. He was sort of starved to death pretty much too. And um, so, they inject him. so by the time we get to take the body to the temple, let's, you do this open casket thing, he was hard as a rock. But the uh, formaldehyde or formalin was Foaming out of his mouth, so everyone started freaking out, thought it was an evil spirit, and so I'm like, no, 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 I'll pray, and it's all fine. So I'm in this Buddhist temple with this guy with this, this stuff foaming, lying there with all the monks, and I'm praying to get rid of all the evil spirits so the kids wouldn't be freaked out. I don't know where that was in the training manual for missionary work, but somewhere. Um, but anyway, so I'm trying to shove tissues in and his mouth, literally hard as a rock, and it's, I mean, it's. I talk about it frequently. I don't. We grew to love this guy and it was heartbreaking and to think of what his life could have been. But to also know the lives of the little boys left in that house, they have now a chance. They would have all been put in orphanages had she been left to nurse her brother because there was no option to take him. But there's plenty of orphanages that will take the kids. That's my little bandwagon, orphanages. 97% of children in orphanages in Thailand are not orphans. They are there because their parents cannot care for them because they work 12 hours a day, six days a week, or there's family breakdown, or they've died of age, or they're in prison. We in the West, 50, 60 years ago, came to the conclusion institutionalised care for children was harmful, and yet we still think it's okay for poor kids in developing countries to go and build orphanages. It's not okay. We need people to go and move and take these kids into their homes to create sustainable businesses so that children are not put into orphanages. It's never a good way to grow up. Anyway, that was just my little bandwagon. Anyway, so the other thing, before I open up for questions, is the other thing, and I think my brief was supposed to talk about how to mobilise people into mission. I don't know if I've covered that, gone off on tangents, as my brain does. The thing that we worked out very quickly is the poor want to be involved. They actually want to be involved in ministry. And what I'm finding out, actually, in Windsor Green, is Muslim women want to be involved in ministry. Last Sunday I went to church with my Muslim friend. She asked to come. I felt like the worst missionary. I didn't even invite her. She had to ask, could I come? And she loved it. I don't know if it's a um, compliment to our minister or not. She thought he was as, a, nearly as good as a Muslim. <laughs> and she, he was doing this whole thing on politics and he showed this picture of Ed Miliband and she says really loudly, oh, I like him. He has a very handsome face. <laughs> so she's not just my Muslim friend. She's my Muslim friend who has a hots for Miliband. <laughs> there you go. Figure that. All the selfies. If you go down into the centre of Birmingham, you've got all these stunningly beautiful young Muslim women doing their selfies and getting their makeup just right. Just uh, blows your kind of image and it makes you remember they're people first, women, children, mothers, they're refugees, and the Muslim bit is the end bit. And if we can actually start to see people as human beings first, we actually have a lot more in common, and I think God can really work in that commonality. But often as Christians, we straight away look at difference, and so that's the thing that we have found has worked. We just assume faith. If all people are God's creation, he's already at work in their lives. We don't bring God in our pocket. We're not like, here's this non-Christian person and we're their first connection to Jesus. God made that person in his image. That Muslim woman, that Sikh man is made in God's image. He is at work in their life. Our role as missionaries is to include them in what's going on and to give God's name to that. And then in that, God's spirit actually transforms. And that's what we're seeing. And so we assume faith and we just join people along. And um, and we don't straight away ask... Because when you straight away want to know if somebody's a Christian or not, you're straight away pointing out maybe a deficit. You're straight away making them feel they're missing something, they're an outsider. And we don't mean it. It's out of good passion that we want to see everyone follow Jesus. I want everyone to know Jesus and to have transformation in their life that I've had and to have a purpose for living. But the starting point is not... Are they or aren't they? The starting point is God's given me this neighbour to love. God's given me this person to love. And they just want to be part of everything that's going on and how can I include them? And so they've, the trendy thing at the moment is ABCD. Has everyone heard of that? It's the new asset-based community development. I don't want to sound cynical, but I just to me that's just normal. Like, does that have to be a thing? It's when you meet someone straight away saying what is it that they've got to give and working out a way that they can do it. So, okay, this, my friend at the moment, she's a great cook. And that's great because I'm not, so we've invited her to move in. It's all about the cooking. Well, don't like that food. No, you can't come What have you? No. Um, So, straight away I'm like, can you teach other people to cook? Maybe we could try a thing where you could teach people. Straight away finding what they've got and finding a way that they're needed. And when people hang around me for a little bit, because I am a bit chaotic and try to start too many things, they naturally feel a bit needed because they've got to fix up the mess. But... You can create that. And if you're not a person who creates that, make sure you've got someone on your team who does. And don't see that as a bad thing. Don't try to shut that down. Have a bit of a mess because then the poor feel like they need to fix it up. And and so that has been a real thing for us, is assuming faith, not starting with are they a Christian or not and how can I get them over line, is just assume they want to be part of God's work. Just assume God is working and join them in and be who you are in every context. So if I'm talking to you like this, so so remember we were at this ISUM conference at Ashran and we decided to give our guys in the slum a job ferrying the foreigners who were visiting on motorbikes. So anyway, something had happened, I can't remember what the story was, but I have all these accidents. I call them, it's another theological term, um, God accident. And so I sat down and I was saying, and these motorbike taxi guys were all sitting around, I go, I just had this amazing miracle, and I was telling them all about it, and they're going, I've got goosebumps. And I just realised that I was just talking to them as if I would talk to somebody in my team. And they were part of the team and they wanted to be part of that. And so if we can start to harness that, get rid of a bit of the churchy language and just have our own, be who we are. And how we talk at work and how we talk to the guy at the shop is how we talk all the time. And that is the God bit and be more fluid. So, yeah. And um, obviously place is really important where you're placed. Um, choosing to be in a place where... Pain and brokenness is present, just choosing to be there and just doing life with people. follow those relationships and then all sorts of crazy adventures happen it 's not we never went to Thailand with a program. we went to a place we tried to live in the poorest part we could find, and then from there relationships led us into micro enterprises and schools and all sorts of things. But often Christians, as soon as they want to help the poor, they start with a food program or a You know, instead, isn't it better that we start as a neighbour and we get the poor to start the food programme? How much better would that be? How much more sustainable, exciting would that be? So anyway, that was my little rave, I think. And the final thing I just wanted to say is don't take yourself too seriously. There's so many serious Christians. God is bored with our seriousness, I think, surely. My kids used to say, gee, church is boring. I'm like, yeah, church can be boring, but God's not. Don't blame him. And I think, you know, sometimes we really do... But then a very boring God, we take us so seriously, we're so intense. And when you move into a community full of pain, you have a mandate to bring joy and happiness. And so one of the things that we've done in every community we've lived in is we celebrate birthdays, we celebrate tiny things. We celebrate somebody went to a job for one day because you never know, they might not go tomorrow. You know, just you have, they used to say in Thailand, we should call ourselves an excuse for a party. And that's it. You know, Jesus was at a lot of parties and I think for a very good reason because life's tough, so don't take yourself too seriously. Anyway, I might leave my big rave there and open it up to questions because I know you've listened a lot. Does anyone have questions, comments, maybe other insights that I've missed that you want to share? Yeah. We used to in Thailand, yeah, in Thailand um, we were famous for having meetings, which everyone would giggle about, but anyway, <laughs> I'll leave that to your imagination. But when you share a one room house with lots of people, you have to have meetings. Um, no, I mean, one of the things about being part of an order, that was why we did that, and that's what we're looking to rework how, how that looks in, in the UK, is we were part of a team with accountability where we had structures in place. Yeah, compulsory holidays, we had Sabbath days and family time. And what we used to do in the slum, actually, because completely chaotic, is we would close the door from 5 to 6.30. And that would be, you know, because my son was really out of control when he was little. And so what the kids would do is they'd just stick sticks through the wall because you could make holes in the wall. And then they'd be calling. But we learnt a bit of white noise, you know, block it out. But we used to make... I'm pretty strict, so we make some strict times. And um, we would intentionally go out. So you see a lot of pastors have these very healthy practices around this is our family day, our phones are off, um, we have a Sabbath, this is our holiday day, we have date night or date day or whatever. Um, So you just have to be very disciplined. We haven't always been disciplined and there are actually some seasons where you can't be and um, we're just for whatever is happening at that time, the chaos that's going on, you're just called to be, to just respond at that moment. But I think... You always have to make sure there's place to recover. So we've had seasons when we took lots of crazy people. We had this girl running on our roof with razor blades in her mouth and all of that. And we another one who we, um, you know, we had to wrestle her baby from her. because She wasn't like I was just all these horrendous things happen. And then after that, we didn't take anyone in for three months. We just had time. You know, part of when we moved to Melbourne, we had just time as a family without any team, without having to lead anything. Same in Birmingham. So God does give you those times, and if. You feel like you need them. It's often the team that notice it first. And I remember once the team at our meeting, we would have communion together every day. And um, they said, Ange, we need you to take a day off. You're driving us all crazy. And, you know, you need to have people who can tell you that stuff. Because I was just wound like a spring and it was... I was pissing everyone off, basically, and I needed to be told. So you need to make sure that you surround yourself with people who will tell you, not people who are just going to... And he'll say, we're concerned about your marriage. You guys need to go and take some time or see someone or whatever. So I don't know if that answers it, Michelle. I think it's much harder with teenage kids. Um, And I think you've just got to be creative. And there are just some stages where you may just need to be outside of the community for periods, for the health of your family. But it's, you know, again, it's, you know, things can always change. So it's never permanent, is it? It's always we're doing this for a season because that's what we call to. The, the danger is we do something for a season and it, we get comfortable. We never go back. And so sometimes real hardcore activists, I've been guilty of this, being really anti that kind of talk because I've seen so many people just then give in to the self. Um, so as long as you've got a team that call you back to what you called to and say, OK, you've had your season now, get on with it. Yeah. Yeah, straight away um, that was a big lesson we learned early on. It's different in different communities, but again, that asset-based stuff is straight away meeting someone and them needing to be needed. How you start a relationship is how it ends. So if you start very codependently, it ends; it's not sustainable. If you start where that person helps you, so what I've given an example of what I did in Winston Green. So I'm there, I'm thinking, how am I going to get to know these parents? I sort of work at the school, but I don't really want to align myself with the whole school thing and all the safeguarding rubbish and all of that. So I'm like, how can I really get to do life with these families? So I come up with something I need to know. And it's got to be genuine because the poor can see through fake things. So I need to know, what do you do if you need to go to the doctors? What happened is Ikea knives, brand-new knives, cut the top of my knuckle off. And I realised at 9 o'clock at night, I wouldn't even know where to go to get it fixed. Well, in the slum, we learnt to use super glue to fix wounds because when you sweat, all the um, micropore, all that falls off. Um, but you shouldn't get it in your wounds. I've now got a big lump. Not a good idea if you don't know what you're doing. But anyway, so I super glued it. But um, it was starting to get quite sore. And so I asked a couple of the women, where do you go to the doctors? And, I got, and one lady said, and they were trying to explain it. I really didn't get it. So she said, do you want me to show you? And so as soon as the kids were dropped off, we jumped in my car and we drove up to where she showed me to go. So straight away starting a relationship with where they're helping you. And straight away you look at someone and say, how can they... It, it goes It's counterintuitive to Christians because we all think we're supposed to be helping people. The kindest thing you can do to a poor and marginalised person is let them help you. And to the point was, when we left Thailand, uh, we were given money by Poo, uh, £2,000 to buy a car. And she calls me into her house with her family's all around and she comes from a big gangster scene, so there's the mother-in-law who's still a big gangster and brother-in-law who's always there for money... And in front of them, they give me this bag, and they say, we want you to have this, to buy a car in England. And I open it up, it's got £2,000 in cash. So I'm like, where'd you get that? No. We'd been on a tour of the UK, and it was proceeds from the sales of her book. And I'm like, no, I can't take your money. And her 15-year-old son puts it in my hand and said, you will take it. And her husband said, you keep saying the poor need to give or we're giving. We've got a car. So embarrassing. My son stirs me about it all the time. Three days later, so I had to learn to accept. And it felt so corrupt, you know, taking thousands of pounds from the lady in the slum and a few days later there was a girl in a wheelchair that we used as a translator amazing story um, she basically woke up paralyzed for a um, viral infection and um, almost quadriplegic and her family got rid of her because in Thailand that's a burden there's no support and about a week later she could speak English it's amazing because she's a brilliant translator and a brilliant translator for our training because she understands brokenness and anyway So we'd been paying her an amount, so she earns the living and lives independently, which is very hard in Thailand, um, by doing translating. She wanted to do a farewell lunch with me. She hands me an envelope with 5,000 baht, which is about $250, about £150, and uh, gives me this money. She says, I want you to use that, as you settle your family in the UK. Talk about humbling. So my son says, really always inappropriately when there's people around. So Mum got money from a poor lady in the slum gave her £2,000 and a, 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 a disabled lady in a wheelchair mum took money from too. <laughs> but you've got to let the poor give. So you have to find ways. There's always something they can do. In my street, I think if all the neighbours get together they're going to say, that dumb Australian lady, how many people did she ask which day bin night was? Because I had to ask, what can you ask? And very little English in our particular street. And so I'd point rubbish bin, which day today? And then so I'd meet that neighbour, then a few days later there'd be another neighbour, and I'd try to think of something to talk to about, which day. The worst thing is when they tell you different days and you're really... Yeah. So, so I think that is really important. And also when you start with programs, people know, the poor know the program is for them. Same, when you start with a housing project, so there's a house set up for homeless young people, it's a nightmare. I've worked in that model, it is a nightmare. The kids don't respect the place, they trash it, they bring home their clients in the middle of the night, all that stuff. When you invite people into your own home, you say, we wanted you to be in our home. We love you, but you cannot use heroin in my house. Very different, isn't it? The house is not set up for them, so there's a very different attitude. So sometimes we need to rethink how we've engaged with the community, actually, to be able to get to that point. And it helps if you don't have any money or anything to give. So we took a vow of poverty as part of our order and the first kids we took into our home stole everything we got for our wedding anyway so then the rest is rubbish so um, you can actually you know that is a bit more authentic when you actually don't have much to give yeah anyone else? I actually think the whole thing of... Do you guys use the term backsliding when someone's... Yeah, awful, awful term. I hate it because it puts all the onus that this person has done something wrong. I would actually say, and particularly prevalent for this generation, when we were younger and all these Youth for Christ type rallies happened where you preach the gospel and thousands have come to the Lord, we were kids who grew up in Sunday school. God had already planted his word in our heart. So what it took is actually someone to preach a word and then we responded. There was something already there. When you're talking to a generation of people or a culture of people that have no kind of concept of God, that model actually doesn't work. And so when we preach, when we do something like that and people have a conversion, they've got an awakening, I think, also. In very few cases, I think it's actually conversion. I think it's an awakening. It would be like someone coming to you in your youth group and saying, I met this bloke today, I'm going to marry him. And you'd be like, oh, hang on a minute, let's get to know him a bit better. first. See what you're committing to, are you sure? And that's the process that the journey of being a follower of Jesus is. I don't think it's being liberal or watering down our faith. It's saying, we don't want converts. We want radical followers of Jesus that last. When somebody feels like they've had a conversion, they've tried the God bit, they've tried the Hindu bit, they've tried the um, self-help bit, it hasn't worked. You know, what's left? Hope. Uh, no hope is despair and often suicide, I think. So we have to be very careful to say, come and get to know who Jesus is. God might be moving in your spirit now, come on this journey, let's work out what it's about and see if that's what you want to do. And then I actually think that that language changes. It's about, are you moving towards Jesus? So we've taken the fence away, haven't we? We've said there's a well in the middle, you're on a big Australian cattle farm. Are the cattle moving this way? No, you don't need a fence because they're moving towards the well. And so our goal is to help people move towards that and then God does his true conversion work through his Holy Spirit. And that's way more sustainable. Those people stay. Now. and so I think we have to recognise that culture's changed. So miracle A, miracle B, a lot of it has to do with that. The other thing is and Danielle t- touched on this, when people have come from generational poverty has anyone done the Oscar Lewis stuff? When you do social work training you do a culture of poverty um, it takes people years to get into the mess that they're in and, and generations. When you know the sins of the forefathers stuff people always talk about you know my grandma was a witch and therefore it might be spirit of witchcraft. I don't believe that I actually think it's the culture of poverty that's passed down generationally. And 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 um, that is what we're praying against. And so just the Oscar Lewis stuff, he formed a thesis, if I can did I bring it with me, I think I did. I'm one of these, bits paper. Um, and he came up with some measures of what it means to be born in the culture of poverty. It's particularly relevant to urban settings. And so um, not everyone who's poor is part of the culture of poverty. So it's not talking about money talking about a way of seeing the world and um, so he came up with some markers that he noticed in Latin America in favelas and then also in, this was in 1960 something, also in poor um, council housing projects in the UK, uh, sorry in the US and he said these are some of the common things I see with the people that I work with, they have suspicion and apathy towards institutions within society, so schools, police, all of that. Uh, they have a production of little wealth and they receive little back in return. So they produce little wealth. Unemployment and the resulting lack of reserves and cash and food. So there's no safety net Is there. That's what we see. Uh, acceptance of middle class values, but they don't live by them. So there's that whole aspirational thing. Advertising has a lot to answer for in this. The poor kids in the slum see Nike ads. They want Nike shoes. They don't want the crappy Asda ones. And so people walk through the slum and say, well, this drug dealer, he's got like an iPhone and he's got a flat screen TV. It's because he, advertising works, folks, and he sees the same ads that we see. And um, so hostility and mistrust of government and police, childhood is not cherished. What Oscar Lewis said, and we saw this in Australia, we've seen this in Winston Green, and we saw it very clearly in Thailand, by the time a child is seven, they've taken on the values of those around them. And... The culture of poverty can be embedded at that age. So when they're 18 and they come to us and we give them a job, they can't show up, they come to work for a week, they get paid and they get pissed for the next week. Uh, Sorry, drunk. That's not a swear word in Australia. Sorry, I need to learn in the UK. They get drunk for a week and they don't come to work. And then you think, oh, they're so ungrateful, they're lazy. How do you learn to get up every day and go to work? Anybody got an idea? How do we learn that? We learn that when we're four, and our parents wake us up every day and send us to preschool. We learn that when we watch our dad go out in the rain to work. We learn that when it's a bit cold or a bit hot and we don't want to go anywhere, but mum says, no, you're going. If you've never had that in your family, at 18, you can't learn that. So when we work with these young people, it takes years to see any kind of change. But you do see change eventually, but you've got to have creative ways of looking at that, understanding that culture of poverty. And the fact is that when hope... And this is, I think, where Satan has a stronghold. Hope is what we have. That's what we're born with. It's what is nurtured in families. That is kicked out of you in a poor community. And so you don't think there's anything better. We had someone come and ask our kids, and I was translating, so thankfully I just left a few bits out. They said, what do you want to be when you grow up? This is a preschool, so we've got three-year-olds to five-year-olds. Most of them said a gangster. A few of them said a shopkeeper, and one said a teacher, because those kids had never seen anything else. And our slum, the rich people, were the gangsters. And so why wouldn't you want to be? We started taking those four-year-olds on field trips to hotels, to banks, because we've got to dream. We've got to get them dreaming, and it starts then. And starting to bribe kids and give rewards for going to school every day and all that stuff. So, yeah, so Miracle A and B, I think a lot of it these days is tied up with there's a lot of mess there to deal with, and people just don't understand how there can be a better world. Even more important, why we need to be living in the communities and modelling a different way. So for us, we model a different way to be a family, so that the kid who's third-generation drug abuse family can see, hey, there's this family, I hang out in their house all the time, they do it differently. Maybe I'd like, when I'm a mum, to take my kid to the zoo or to do, you know, so that there's that power of that sort of modeling as well. So I don't know if that encourages you. But the miracle bees, I think that's where God's at. As much as it's pain. <laughs> And, you know, it's years, isn't it? And it takes 20 years to see change in something. Certainly for us, 12, 10 years, that was just the beginning, actually. I see we're out of time. Maybe one more question? Did you have a... well I can tell you an actual concrete example of that last year this friend I told you about my atheist friend who lived the high life and everything in Thailand found out as do a high percentage of women in Thailand expats that her husband actually ran off with a Thai prostitute very common and then she sent me that very text said how can you believe in a God when this happened?" and my response is I have to believe in a God for this very reason I have to believe there's something better And so it's in that pain I have to believe that there's justice for you. I have to believe that God has something that's going to bring about healing for you in this difficult situation. So I don't know if that's helpful, but it's in those despair moments that I have to believe in a God. In the good moments, I don't need to because there's good things happening, isn't it wonderful? But it's in those horrible things that we have to believe there's something better, that there's going to be uh, a new heaven and a new earth, that there's going to be... uh, justice for these women who are abused and battered and mistreated and that um, God is going to make it right even though the world can't so I don't know if that sounds too glib but and I cry I cry with these ladies you have to because I don't know I get pretty mad at God sometimes I say that to people we are just very quickly can we do one more quick minute um, we had I don't know we'll take you off don't worry I'll leave it but it was a similar scenario where we just like to say we have to believe there's something better than this. Yeah. I'm going to leave it there, I think. Thank you very much, Angie. Yeah, we have run out of time sadly, but uh... thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support or even get involved with one of our teams.